Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I can prove that consequential evidence was withheld and misrepresented. Sometimes life isn't complicated. The answer is sitting right there in front of you, just waiting for you to see them. You can either let the past haunt you or you move on. I can't change what happened. You can't either. True, but I can try to understand it. For your lies, Michael. You can't walk back from deceit. I don't care what it takes or how long. You're going to make up for these mistakes. I'm not taking the goddamn plea. I am not going to say I killed Kathleen. Welcome back to the companion podcast to The Staircase. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. Just when you think you've heard it all, that there couldn't possibly be another plausible theory in the death of Kathleen Peterson, along comes episode seven. And with it, a new murder, a new potential suspect, and a whole new lead on what really happened that December night in 2001. Only this time, it's Michael's girlfriend, the French documentary editor who is convinced that she can crack the case. And at first, it seemed she might actually prove Michael's innocence. But the deeper she digs, the more of Michael's secrets are revealed. I'm here once again with Maggie Cohn, co-showrunner and writer of this episode, to navigate the latest shocking revelations. And later, I'll be sitting down with actress Parker Posey, to discuss her role as the prosecution firebrand assistant district attorney, Freda Black. So here we are, episode seven. Welcome back to the companion podcast to The Staircase, Maggie Cohn. It is so great to see you again. Thank you for joining. Ah, it's so good to be back. Thank you. So the title of this episode for me says it all. Seek and ye shall ellipses. Um, (laughs) I was about to say. Yes. Punctuation is actually important in this. Yes. The ellipses is maybe what says it all. Help us us understand what this episode's about. I think, you know, in the context of the season, it's about um, Sophie um, trying to come up with answers, um, knowing that the more she knows about that night, the less she knows about Michael. Mm. the intention is that you seek and you find something. And in this case, the more she seeks, the less she knows. Um, And I think that does speak to a lot of the experience that we had while creating the series is that you try and put your finger on something and the more you investigate it, you realize the less you have a hold of it. Um, 
And again, it's returning back to the idea that you have to find comfort in the not knowing and in the gray. Well, and I, I think what's stunning in this episode is that there is this additional murder that has taken place. Yeah. That seems like the way out. It's the answer. There, you know, uh, Dennis Rowe shows up, turns up dead, and his yes. injuries seem identical to what happened to Kathleen Peterson. And lo and behold, they have a weapon, the flashlight. Yes. Finally, yes. case closed. And you see Sophie, who has come to really love Michael and feels that gravitational pull to want to find justice. You see her really try to relentlessly pursue this avenue to find out if it's the truth or not. And I think what it stuck with me is that she's pulled in like how we've all gotten pulled in to try and find out what happened and we'll do anything to see if it might. But in this case, it seems like, gosh, that seems pretty close. Like <laughs> it's eerie, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, well, yes, it was eerie. Um, someone presented a theory to us, which was that Dennis Rowe, who, um, you know, while the prosecution in 2001 to 2003 was investigating um, the night of Kathleen's death, they, you know, wanted to speak with the men that had, um, you know, claimed to have had mm -hmm. affairs with Michael prior to Kathleen dying. Um, Dennis Rowe was one of them. Kathleen used to babysit Dennis Rowe. Oh, yes, that's right. They're, they grew up together in the same, yeah. Oh, it's it's like, oh, yeah, so it's a long story of like, that's how they know each other. Yes. And then he recognizes Michael and at of campaign fundraiser that Lori, Kathleen's sister, brought him to. Right. Um, he doesn't tell Lori about it, but he does tell the police. Ultimately, the police don't put him on the stand because or sorry the prosecution doesn't put him on the stand because you know we we posit that it's because if he spoke about my, his affair with Michael he would then perhaps be questioned by defense about his affairs with other other important men in Durham um but he did give a list of people that Michael might have associated with and one of these other men is a man called Tyrone Lacour mm -hmm. fast forward uh Dennis is very sadly, he is, he's been murdered. Um, and it's a pretty, as far as cases can be cut and dry, this one is, it's one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Tyrone, I, I think all but admits to doing it, but, um, he has stolen Dennis's car from his driveway after killing him. And it's in his, like, there's a lot of evidence that points to Tyrone's guilt. Um, and the, the murder weapon is something as ubiquitous as a black mag flashlight, the mm -hmm. type of flashlights that police officers carry that we, you know, many people have in their homes. He has beaten Dennis over the head with it. So what this presents to Sophie, our character, is two things. And they kind of conflict with one another. One, it suggests that there there is this, this guy who knew both Dennis and Michael and had two people within his vicinity that died in very similar, albeit unique ways. Yes. Um, maybe he has something to do with their, with Kathleen's death. If he has something to do with Dennis's death, but then if you believe that you then also need to realize that Kathleen Peterson's injuries, injuries are no longer an anomaly and that they occurred from a beating. 
Right. And so it's asking our character to take something she believes, which is that Kathleen's death ultimately was a consequence of falling down the stairs and think maybe that's not what happened. But fundamentally, she still believes that Michael is innocent. What she later discovers, which is what we discovered in the writer's room, is that Tyrone had the perfect alibi that he was in jail at that that night, the night that Kathleen um, Kathleen died. And so he clearly wasn't the person that was at 1810 Cedar that night. Um, That being said, you know, the reason Tyrone also looked like the perfect suspect is that if he had had an affair with Michael, he wouldn't necessarily have had to break into the house. He would have Mm. known how to enter it without leaving any evidence. And that is something that the police found intriguing because there wasn't any signs of a break-in. They did look at 1810 Cedar and try and investigate, did someone come in here and surprise Kathleen? Did she surprise somebody in the midst of a robbery like Tyrone LaCour, who was a known criminal? Right. Everyone's experience with that night isn't necessarily about this need to figure out what the truth is, but it's what that night, how did it impact them? What they brought to that night before it even occurred and then what that night, like what happened after it and how it resonated for years afterwards. And that that's different for everybody because everybody's different. And so in exploring the characters, that's where it's really fun because you have this one thing that everyone's universally experiencing but the experience of it is far from universal. And so while it is about that night, it's really about her trying to figure out who is this man that I love and how much longer can I love him like this? And then you see sort of over time, the kind of like, with every avenue explored, it's this fatigue. And I can't tell if that's loyalty or tunnel vision that you just can't stop until you can get just get reached the end and maybe she's realizing there's never going to be an end, which I think is what keeps us captivated about this case all along. You lose with each fatiguing turn. You just can't seem to find your way out of it. And how are you going to stop now? You've come this far. I think it also speaks to the the journey of like of search, of searching for something. And I yes. think because the show does go over so many years getting the answer, the search for the answer evolves and it means different things to the same person over time. Yeah. (laughs) And in this, we get to explore that. Like, what does this search mean to this person, you know, in 2001, 2003, 2007, 2010, and then 2017. And as it turns out, like everything else in life, it changes. (laughs) Because the thing never changes in theory. It's only the person's relationship to it that does. (laughs) Okay. Along those lines, as if I didn't love Parker Posey any more than I do, her performance as ADA Freda Black is one of my favorite performances in a long time. But on top of it, between the writing and her performance, just the, the, the texture that you give to someone that we kind of, if you follow the documentary, you kind of write her off or even worse, you kind of see her as a villain. In this episode, here we've seen Freda Black, the investigator comes to find her and there she is uh, working at a dry cleaners. Mm -hmm. And again, that's one of those, I need to Google this, it can't possibly be true. (laughs) Yeah. But it is true, isn't it? Yeah. 
So um, Fred, unfortunately, her career in the DA's office wasn't as long as someone like Jim Harden's. Um, and, you know, she's suffered in a way that many people suffer with addiction. And um, ultimately, I you know, that's what led to her premature death. The fact is, yeah, she did work in a dry cleaner. The fiction is that she then became a fundamental part of the um, investigation sure. into the State Bureau of Investigation. Uh -huh. But what we did see was this is an opportunity to speak to the truth of what we believe her character to be, which is a woman who who fundamentally, um, I think, I believe, I stand to be corrected, but I believe she went to a Unitarian church and like a very you know, somewhat liberal approach to religion, especially in the South, that was accepting of all sorts of, you know, life, you know, family orientations. And so the bigoted nature that we saw Frederick Black put on the stand, we began to believe while it's debatable whether that's an appropriate thing to do, it wasn't necessarily speaking to her personal belief. So at the end, when Freda was speaking to Evelyn, our investigator, in 107, she's saying what I think is a fundamental question of justice, which is if I believe someone is guilty, what is what is out of line in making sure that this person never hurts another person? Like what, what, what do you take off the table? Because mm. I'm going to do everything in my power to stop them from hurting another person. And that's how I live with myself. And if that's wrong, then okay. But like, I'm telling you, that's my truth. And so it's her defense of why she decided to approach the Peterson case in the way that she did by using Michael's bisexuality as something that was, it's a bad thing. But she also speaks to the fact that justice is like just kind of shitty, generally speaking, you know, like a man hits his wife and he goes to prison for three months. But if he steals a car, holy shit, now we're talking real crime. And that to me is like my personal belief about justice is that it is a flawed, flawed system sure. and that it's the system that we're holding on to to make us feel safe <laughs> and make us feel like there's some way that the world course corrects itself when something bad happens. And I think, you know, more and more we're getting these cases where, where it's becoming apparent that people are going to prison for crimes that they did not commit. And they're going because of prejudice and bias. Yes. And that we are using those things to make ourselves feel better and safer when they are absolutely doing the opposite of that. There's this kind of kicker where the investigator says, right, and Jim Harden's now a judge, and you're here. Right. And that just went like, ugh. I think it does speak to, you know, possibly that she worshipped a false idol, which is law and justice. Mm -hmm. We learn that Jim Harden is now a judge, and Fred is working at a dry cleaner, and that's just, that's showing kind of how far Freda has fallen when she was playing by the rules set by Jim Harden. We're taking artistic license with the idea that, you know, she somehow got played. But I also think that, you know, she was a woman working in a man's world and mm -hmm. she did want to excel. And ultimately, she found that that 
that that wasn't something that she could do. And so, you know, I think it just speaks to you're trying to do the right thing, but when even in in any organization or within any system, things are going to be prohibitive to doing that. And certainly she says that, you know, like I I will do anything in my power to keep someone from, you know, doing something bad again. And it's it's her desire to use the system to do that. And she knows how to play it. And she falls from grace and other people don't. And, you know, whether she's unlucky or she deserved it, it's kind of up to you to decide. And we kind of offer both of those options for her character. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So we are in the, you know, we're at the penultimate episode. There's one more coming up. Um, the one child outside of Caitlin who seems to kind of start questioning the past with her father is Martha. And there are, there's her reluctance to share her exploration of her sexuality and there is this moment where she finds out that she might have been abused offered up for adoption given away and she's really trying to find out the answers um help us understand this side of martha and sort of what that gives us in this moment in the story yes so the other character in this episode that is doing a lot of questioning um is is Martha, um, Margaret's younger sister. And um, during the trial, she learns that she was possibly physically abused by Michael um, and that we also kind of highlight the fact that she has mm-hmm. questions and that something just doesn't feel right, um, which... I think, you know, uh, part of, you know, writing this series was also investigating the nature of trauma um, because no matter how you look at it, these kids have been through, especially Margaret and Martha, have been through some fairly traumatic things, um, the the death of not one but two mothers. Um, and Martha uh, isn't, I don't want to say, so she's she's not afraid to explore that and um so what she does is she goes back and she investigates um her childhood in germany and what she finds out is that after after the untimely death of their father and then the death of their mother 
Michael and Patty take uh, guardianship over the girls. And they, that's in addition to having two kids of their own. And so they're unexpectedly, you know, having to be parents to, to you know, for better or worse, two girls who are kind of on their own in this moment. And um, which is very hard to do. And so what we wanted to show was that while Martha's learning this, and this is good, it's great that she's learning this because finally she has a reason for the unsettled feeling that she's had. And so there's a piece that you get from learning that something bad has happened because then at least you can resolve that, that instability that you feel within yourself. It doesn't mean that someone's bad or good, but it does mean that she learns this thing about her dad. And then we have a conversation with Patty who kind of puts it into perspective, which is the bruises that Agnes, your nanny, saw that she believed to be evidence of Michael's abuse. She says, you were having tantrums. You did it to yourself. And both of these things can still be true at the same time. They don't have to be exclusive. But now we have two explanations mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. why there was a bruise. Again, the relationship with the thing. <laughs> well, and also what Martha wants to choose to believe because... If she chooses that she did it herself, her father's exonerated, even if it means that she was more troubled exactly. than she realized. And if it's the other. Right. I think another thing about this show and this season and looking for truth and, you know, justice is that correlation doesn't equal causation. Right. Yes. Right. And so a man that abused a, a you know, a, a young girl, like, doesn't necessarily throw women down the stairs. Yes, that's right. Does it make him a murderer? Right. Mm -hmm. yep. Again, we're constantly looking for patterns. Like we want to believe that like if we all just follow the rules, everything will be fine. And it's like that's it's not that's just not how life works. OK, Maggie, something like that plays out in this episode. Sophie is speaking to the detective about the outcome of the case with Dennis Rowe. And she realizes she doesn't have the smoking flashlight. And she says in the most French way possible. Sometimes life is complicated. And the detective says back, sometimes life isn't complicated. Like, he did it. Well, that's what he's saying. And the detective is using, and it's for better or worse, he's using, um, he's using his experience. When I see this, 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 and this happen, when I see debt, when I see infidelity, when I see stress and work trouble and emptiness, alcohol, you know what I see? I see murder. And the reason I say murder is nine times out of 10, yes. that's what it was. <laughs> and what she's saying is, I know nuance. I know that if I put A here and B here, then it's going to equal C. But if I put B here and A here, maybe we get to D instead. And so they just are coming at the same case from a different perspective. And neither of them is right and neither of them is wrong. Ah, <laughs> oh, there was just so much so much <laughs> thought and intelligence put into this series, Maggie. Well, we hope so. <laughs> Again, I've seen this original staircase about four times. And I think I'll do as many, if not more, viewings of this story because it's just phenomenal. It's incredible work and I'm excited for people oh. to receive it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. With this all-star cast, every episode in this series is an embarrassment of performance riches. In this episode, Parker Posey's portrayal of ADA Freda Black is so transformative, 
it might change the way viewers feel about the real-life Freda Black, as well as Michael Peterson's murder trial. Here, I speak with Posey about her surprisingly sympathetic depiction of a character that in the documentary, viewers love to hate. Posey also reveals her own love of true crime. Welcome to the podcast, Parker Posey. Hi. <laughs> when I saw you as Assistant District Attorney Freda Black in The Staircase, it was, and I think viewers will find this too, a stunning embodiment. Oh my God, thank you. A woman that we thought we knew, and more than that, Parker, it, I think between obviously the incredible writing, but also your performance Aww. of this character will change the way we understand Freda Black right. with the compassion oh that most people would not have had. Michael Stuhlbarg, who is kind of like playing, would it be fair to call David Rudolph a nemesis of <laughs> Freda Black? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. First of all, can we talk about Michael Stuhlbarg and how he's one of my favorite actors? <laughs> and just I'm laughing because we have like enough for a whole Stuhlbarg podcast because everybody loves him so much. Like he's a real actor's actor. You know, the nerds, all the actor nerds love Michael Stuhlbarg. He's he's really, you know, in, in my view, he's very he's very, he's very zen. He's very um, heady and and just he's just an artist, you know. I just think he's um, he's just wonderful. So he, you know, flew to talk to David Rudolph, and I was all excited about that because you know Freda Black has since passed. Um, she passed away in 2017, I think, right after the Netflix documentary came out. Yeah. So um, I didn't get to talk to Freda, but. Um, there was just such an opportunity to be able to to talk to to play like a real person, and I mean I love this stuff. Like I loved the staircase. I love investigative journalism, and you know I'm, I watch all of these long form documentaries. You know the story, the way that is presented in our system, the way that actors express themselves. To me, Freda was a really gifted prosecutor. And when I started watching court TV and I watched her closing argument, I'm like, this is a one woman show. Mm. You know, she's playing to the audience. She knows her audience and she wins this with bigotry and, you know, she knows how to win it. And so her friend Candy, who worked with her, was like, you know, Fred, I was just a, she was just, she was a brilliant prosecutor um, outside the courtroom. She just didn't have self-esteem. She died basically. She, she died of alcoholism, and there were like twenty-two bottles found in in her room. And um, I think this case, and the blogs, and the you know, and there's something about being so dismissed by what how others perceive you and not taking your work seriously that I think, you know. So when I talk to David Rudolph, I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> I'm so excited to connect with you, and he's like you know, emailed back, like, as long as you could say pure tea filth in a North Carolina accent. Wait, I just want to say, when he, he said, if you can say, because this is a really important phrase that will echo throughout, what was the, uh, what was the phrase he wanted to make sure you could say? Pure tea filth. Pure tea filth. Filth. <laughs> That's what's so fun about playing a real person. 
is that you're not making up this stuff. You're reading about it. Like I read that Written in Blood book. And um, when I got on the, the phone with David Rudolph, it was clear there were still a lot of feelings towards the case. He's like, it was unfair. And it's interesting to me, I mean, this is what's so fun about drama is like, you look at these people like, you know, like characters, you know, yes, they're, they're villains and, and heroes and all that. But I feel like this is like, you know, after a certain point, it just takes on a world of its own and it doesn't really matter. Going into this production, what were your feelings about Michael Peterson? You know, when I saw Michael Peterson, I'm like, wow, what an interesting, like, who is this person? You know, I was so drawn to this, you know, his his whole bag. And and so that I, I didn't want him to be guilty. I didn't want him to have done that, you know? Well, okay, so you you you're familiar with the Michael Peterson case. You find him a charismatic figure, which many do. Um, and now you're tasked with playing the woman who thinks that Michael Peterson is anything but innocent. And her job is to convince people that he's guilty. So did that inform how you playing Freda Black and knowing that you had to invest in her belief in his guilt? Did that change the way that you felt about Michael Peterson? I'm kind of naive in a way, you know. I don't want to see that or think of that, you know. There's a lot of heartbreak in this in this trial. Yeah, it's it's dark, you know. It's 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 violent. It's um I guess the work came with um you know, a lot of darkness that I I wouldn't enter myself with otherwise. And I think, you know, what happened with, with Freda towards the end there, you know, it all really got the best of her. Um, I am not scared of the truth here. Parker, um, I think everything you're saying is e- extremely interesting because there is such, people want to know the depth of the work in this particular story because the Michael Peterson case is so compelling. The thing that I found really interesting, you were, according to Antonio Campos, the first person cast. Yeah, isn't that great? We were at the Deauville Film Festival together, and he was a young filmmaker then, and he invited me to a screening of his first movie after school. And I'm like, wow, what? A, this is the real deal. I was so excited. So uh, we, stayed, we stayed in touch a little bit, and I, uh, he reached out to me in around 2011, and um, he's like, do you, did you ever see The Staircase? I said, oh my God, I'm so obsessed with, with that. Like, I love that stuff. Um, he said, yeah, I want to make a, a movie out of it, and I want you to play Friday Black. So then it was like over a decade later that it ends up being an HBO series, which is so much more, you know, expansive and interesting and funny and, and um, compelling. You can do so much more. So, yeah, I wasn't waiting. Um, I wasn't waiting for it. But when it, when it did come around, I was really excited. I was really excited about it. Because timing's everything, you know, timing's everything. I felt the right age to play her. And um, yeah, it felt really cozy. 
you know, the whole experience is as dark as it was. It felt really cozy and warm. You find out your cast is Freda Black. You're excited. You know the material really well. And then you discover, unfortunately, that she passed away. So how do you go about then sort of posthumously being able to connect with a character like Freda Black and do what you do in this series, which is humanize her and show some of the motivation about sort of why she behaved like how she did and have us understand her in a way that, again, that I didn't, I don't think was possible from the documentary where she's a Southern Corolla DeVille. Um, looking at her and the job that she did as a performer, seeing another performer at the, in the courtroom, um, someone who was naturally like expressive, like she couldn't contain herself. She's, she's very much like a, an, an actress in a way. Um, you know, the sassy person that she was and the smart, incredibly smart lawyer. You have to be really smart to work your way up in a man's world. And she was a formidable character within that macho, you know, in the South. You know, she kind of devoured her work and um, garnered a lot of respect because of her work ethic. She's weaving this this story together and these hypotheses and in a way that Jim Harden needs her to do. That's her position there. She is really good at that. Um, one of the things that I loved playing a Southerner is that, you know, they really... Um, well, they're storytellers. I think Southerners, you know, they tell long stories. It's very natural for her. It's part of who she is. It's a lot of work for a, a, to carry a case like that and to, um, you know, dress to the nines and, you know, put on a show, really. Like, she's on her toes in that courtroom. Um, when I read her scenes, there was a danger of, of making her a joke, of having her be too vampy, um, having her, you know, um, be homophobic. And instead, I was like, I want to play, you know, I want this woman to, I mean, she has a life. She goes out with her girlfriends. She drinks. She has relationships. She's a mom. She's, she's doing it all. And so, um, you know, lots of output. In, in in her, lots of energy. And I think that's why she burned so brightly. And then having, you know, directed so much force into this case than to have been written about in blogs and called like Cleopatra or whatever they were saying, you know, back then, you know, was painful. It was like really, really painful. We find out both in the series and in real life Despite the success she has with Michael Peterson's case and other cases, her career doesn't quite pan out. Um, and she loses a run for district attorney. Why do you think her career did not turn out the way that she had hoped it would? It wasn't because she was a woman. I think there was a woman who followed, um, who was in the office. I think uh, that there was a first female in uh, the DA's office. So I don't think it was... Um, I think she was a lot. 
I think she gave a lot to this case. And then I think this case did a lot to her and how it, um, you know, affected her, her very life. She was a gifted prosecutor, but outside of that, her self-esteem was very, very low. Like, this wasn't a woman who really um, believed in herself separately out of, you know, out of the work that she was doing. Um, one of the things about when you, when you play someone who's still alive, like, I still think, you know, I'm like, she has daughters, she has family. There are people that still love her, care about her. She was a human being that, like, burned through this case on, and was exposed for all the ways that she wanted to win, that she thought she could win this case by dressing a certain way, and she won. And then I guess it was seen as, um, you know, it was homophobic, it was you know, what a long way we've, we've come, baby, from, from, from that. Um, but in some ways, not, not, so, not so far. I mean, it's still the same old story. We know how people, how most people understand Freda Black who didn't know her, who watched the most recent Netflix uh, collection of the documentary. That's 2017. How would you like people to see Freda Black now in the HBO Max version of The Staircase? Um, well, a human being, someone who was good at what she does, worked very hard, flawed, you know, someone who was such a product of her environment and that she was like a really vibrant, uh, you know, big force of a, of a personality. I didn't want her to be a bigot, you know? I didn't want her to be a gay, hating, like, small-minded. Because to me, she doesn't seem like that. She seems really bold. She seems really sexual and, like, alive and and going with her gut. Um, and, you know, she was part of a Unitarian church. And everything that she's saying and everything that she's doing in, the, in this case, and this is a system, is what you do to win. And so now, okay, so now the blogs come along. And everything, all that that she'd worked towards and the mistakes that were made, um, you know, she just, she was diminished. And that's, that's tragic. It got the best of her. It got the best of her. So I guess I'm like, I want you to see her as a tragic, you know, flawed, fantastic, um, you know, brave, ballsy, brassy woman, you know. Um, and she, she, she used her feminine wiles in this way that was, that was um, you know, that worked. There was this other, there was this other side to her yeah, and I think the most successful aspect of this series, and I guess the most ironic, is that we get more truth about who she was in this dramatized version of events than we ever did in the documentary. And that is thanks to, again, your extraordinary performance, Parker Posey. And so thank you so much for sharing your time with us and helping us understand it all. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. Thank you. 
That's it for this episode. Thanks to Maggie Cohen and Parker Posey for joining us. Next week, for our final episode, we'll hear from Antonio Campos and Maggie Cohen one last time. In Colin Firth, we'll talk about the conclusion of this limited series and whether or not we've heard the last of Michael Peterson. That episode will be released the same day as the final episode of The Staircase on Thursday, June 9th. I'm Nancy Miller. The Staircase podcast is produced by HBO Max in conjunction with Campfire Studios in association with High Five Content. The Campfire team includes executive producers Ryan Alexander Steiner, Rebecca Evans, and Ross Dinnerstein. High Five Content's executive producer is Andrew Jacobs. Our senior producer is Brandon Fibbs. Our coordinator is Mary Ald. Editing and mixing by Robbie Carver. Music from the series The Staircase by Danny Bensi and Sonder Urians. Legal by Diana Palacios. Special thanks to Moses Martinez at Loud & Strong Studios and David Ursua at Studio Awesome. And a very special thanks to you, our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. So if you like the podcast and you have a minute, please review and rate this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream the podcast on HBO Max. See you next episode. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.